1: Shira Ovide of Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, joining us in the studio uh, about the uh, Amazon purchase of Whole Foods. Uh, go ahead, give us your take on on. Well,
3: first of all, I was surprised. Um, That seems to be
1: everybody. Yes, that
3: seems to be everybody. I mean, we should say that our colleagues at Bloomberg News wrote a story in April that uh, essentially said Amazon looked, it talked internally about buying Whole Foods last fall, and they decided not to pursue it. But it shows you that this has been something that's been on Amazon's mind for a while. And the really interesting thing here is that grocery shopping is one of the biggest categories of consumer spending, but it has been very resistant to eat commerce. Only about 2 or 3% of all grocery shopping happens online. And you know, that's the kind of thing that Amazon loves to attack. Here is a humongous market with $800 billion in annual spending in the U.S. alone, but it needs a kind of Amazon e-commerce touch. And well, so that's what we're seeing here. What is that touch? To be honest, I do not know.
2: I, I have, because I mean, everyone yeah. talks about that, but a lot of people have been trying to give it this touch,
3: this yes. online Including touch. Including Amazon, it should be said. Yeah. That Amazon has a, something called Amazon Fresh, which is an online grocery delivery service that it started rolling out. Ten years ago now, um, and starting in its hometown of Seattle, and it's since expanded to a number of markets. But even by Amazon's own admission, Fresh has not gone gone extremely well. And Amazon, more recently, has tried some other grocery ideas. It Uh, just open some um, pickup kiosks in Seattle, again, where you order online, and then you drive up to these windows to kind of pick up your groceries. It's opening a convenience store for food and other merchandise also in Seattle. So it's clear that Amazon has been very interested in grocery, but maybe not exactly sure how to do it. And To be honest, I don't know what their plans are for Whole Foods. Do they think the future of shopping is stores? Do they think it's online? Do they think it's a mix of both? This is exactly what I was wondering. I mean, is this going to change the Whole Foods experience dramatically or are they going to leave it as is and sort of, uh, you know, jump off of that? I I would bet, and and this is sort of a semi-educated guess, to be fair, I would bet that they would for now, leave Whole Foods, you know, as a grocery chain, but they would use it as a a kind of a test bed for new ideas. And I don't think that they're spending $13.7 billion simply to buy a grocery chain. They're buying it because they want to figure out what the grocery shopping of the future is, and then they want to control that and (laughs) use Whole Foods as a way to kind of get them there.
1: They also access all of this incredible data, correct? I mean, everything that gets scanned, whether it's a stock keeping unit that's being put on the shelf or something that's being put into a bag as you check out, you may not even have a human cashier.
3: Yeah, that's right. I, I think the data piece is, is huge that they're suddenly going to get all this information, not just about shopping behavior, but also about the kind of mechanics of running a grocery chain with distribution and dealing with suppliers and things like that. Again, our, our Bloomberg News colleagues wrote this big piece about Amazon's kind of grocery ambitions a while ago. And one of the revelations there was Amazon had a problem with the kind of inventory and distribution in groceries that, you know, bananas would go bad and things like that. So it's also getting some expertise on the back end of running well, uh, food delivery, although- food to- operations.
2: I mean, it's interesting, though, that they chose Whole Foods of all places because Whole Foods hasn't exactly been a stellar example of distribution and they've struggled with overpriced uh, items. And this has not been a grocery store chain that has done phenomenally well in the past few years. Uh, is it because the valuation What made more sense for Amazon or was it because uh,
3: they saw something else? Well, Whole Foods has some serious advantages. One is that it has a very good brand. And that's certainly something that is valuable for Amazon. And also Whole Foods was uniquely vulnerable, right, that it's been attacked by uh, Jonna Partners, an activist investor recently. And so, you know, it, it was in the position where Whole Foods needed a white knight. And Jeff Bezos, I guess, was more than happy to swoop in and be that white knight.
1: The uh, Amazon Web Services business is always cited as being this growing conglomerate inside of Amazon. Just give you 20 seconds to connect that with this purchase. <laughs>
3: um, so one thing that has been speculated is could Amazon Amazon's grocery ambitions be the next AWS, that it's if they manage to get the distribution of food right and the in-store experience right, can they then sell that as software to other grocery companies? That's fascinating. Shira Ovide,
2: always fabulous speaking with you, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Uh, I, You put it so nicely, and it really gives us a sense of what could be at stake here and why this is being treated as such an industry disruptor. Shira Ovide, her columns are awesome. Go read them. They have a new executive, but it has a very big problem that is coming uh, to the new executive, John Flannery, from Jeff Immelt, who just stepped down. And Catherine Chaglinski, a Bloomberg News reporter, highlighted this in a recent story looking at how GE has a $31 billion deficit in its pension, which is the biggest among S&P 500 companies, and this even more shockingly, 50 percent greater than any other corporation in the U.S. Catherine, how did we get to this point? How is GE so desperately underfunded in its pension?
4: Yeah, definitely. John Flannery has this big hole to fill. Um, like most corporate pensions, the financial crisis really wrecked them. That was when they fell underfunded. And it's it's been a hard time trying to recoup those losses over the years. I mean, interest rates have been really poor. And even if you've invested in other assets, you know, it It's been a volatile market, and it's hard to always kind of recoup those losses. Um, A lot of companies have instead been putting cash to their plans, or they've been offloading them to insurers. They've looked for kind of other solutions to try and shore up these pensions. Um, But with GE, it's just steadily uh, trended down in terms of uh, their shortfall.
1: Now, GE has a lot of company, doesn't it? I mean, it's not as if GE is alone in not having a completely funded pension plan. Some of the most recognized and largest companies in the United States, General Electric, as you're writing about, but General Motors, Boeing, ExxonMobil, AT&T, Lockheed Martin. Is there no uh, downside legally or financially to underfunding your pension plan so they just go ahead and don't worry about it?
4: Yeah, so actually, if you uh, hold an underfunded pension plan, you have to pay more fees to the PBGC, which is kind of the government agency that backstops these. Um, so there is an immediate kind of financial cost to these plans. You know, it is important to recognize that these obligations are decades long. So if markets start to rally, yes, that might really help them. Um,
1: as long as they're invested in the asset that actually rallies correct. compared to the bonds that they have been buying because they're afraid to buy
4: stocks. Definitely. So they, I mean, they, they're they pretty well to They have equity. They have debt, real estate, private equity. They actually own um, 30 million dollars or 30 million shares of GE, in fact. Um, But it's hard to always bet on that. And a lot of companies now are starting to say, you know, we're not going to wait for markets to kind of help us. A lot of companies are taking these actions. And you have big public pensions that have just come out outright and said, look,
2: our long time assumption that we're going to get seven and a half returns each year on our assets is going out the window. We're going to have to lower that to six and a half to six point two five percent, whatever it is, which means more contributions in the part of uh, both employees as well as possibly, uh, you know, the actual organization, right? I mean, but what strikes me about GE is that GE opted not to do what others were doing, not to make contributions, instead to give out $45 billion, basically, to shareholders with buybacks instead, basically because of this activist pressure. I mean, at some point, this is going to come back to bite them, because you have to wonder, are they just investing in riskier assets with the uh, money from the pension
4: in order to make up for the shortfall and cross their fingers? Yeah, so they, they have been making some contributions. about Over the past two years, it's been about $2 billion to their pension plan, but that's paltry compared to the 45000000000 billion they've been spending on share repurchases. And while it's, you know, while the pension plan could receive a great boost from interest rates while it might be fine in the end we argue that you know it's kind of this this uh this tension between those short term effects of hey let's appease these activist shareholders make sure our investors are happy with this kind of growing hole that they have on their on their balance sheet and it's hard to recoup those losses
1: well, I was just going to say, just add to this idea that you're talking about what these assets, what they're invested in, the, the various assets, because when you have interest rates that are as low as you describe, and we're all living through this, um, there is no way that you're going to meet your benchmark, your target, right? You're, and that hasn't even been uh, a, a sort of reality moment for many pension fund uh, managers, correct?
4: Correct. And um, so GE has lowered. They went from about 9% in the early 2000s to now 75 But it's still, that's kind of a higher assumption for the way markets are doing. We've seen a lot of pension plans um, either lower those even further or take steps to kind of better match their assets and their liabilities, kind of taking a traditional insurance view of it. Um, And that has also helped to at least mitigate the volatility cuz sometimes you're just never going to make up those returns but at least you don't want to And they have to keep cash, further. right?
1: I mean the ERISA rules say that you have to keep a certain amount of cash on hand in order to pay out current beneficiaries.
4: Yeah, they definitely need um, cash to be able because some of these beneficiaries are already taking payments and but a lot of those obligations are decades long. So they'll still have, you know, a bunch of assets to kind of play with for a little bit. Does, is GE the biggest Pension, uh, or company with a with a pension out there. They do. I mean, they have a very sizable pension. So ninety four billion dollars in obligations and about sixty three in assets right now. What are the comparable
2: Just, kinds of? Uh, what are the other companies with comparable pensions?
4: Yeah, I mean, it it kind of sizes up with um, many industrial companies. Those tend to be kind of the larger pensions that we see. It's kind of those legacies of decades of kind of blue collar workers. Um, they're about sixty seven percent funded. That's kind of an important number to recognize is, um, you know, their their obligations to kind of their assets that they have now. Um, generally, pension experts say 80% is where you tend to want to be, um, and higher if you can, but 80% is kind of a good one to shoot for.
1: Well, I was going to say, if you also get a chance, there's a great uh, piece of uh, corporate research by uh, Bob uh, Coley over uh, at uh, Russell Investments. It's it's uh, about this year. It's earlier this year, but it talks about the $20 billion uh, club, meaning, you know, do you have liabilities that you're unmet by more than $20 billion? And, um, well, you know, you've got uh, General Electric, as I said, General Motors, but just to add to the list. AT&T, Dow Chemical. Well, we know what's happening there. Johnson & Johnson, uh, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention. Really well done and uh, look forward to more. Catherine Chiglinski, U.S. Insurance Report. for Bloomberg well insulin insulin is uh, one of those drugs uh, that is life sustaining and it is sold throughout the United States at prices that have increased dramatically over the last decade. Here to tell us more about drug pricing is Michael Ray. He is the founder and the chief executive of RX Savings Solutions, and he joins us from Overland Park, Kansas. Michael, thanks for being with us. Uh, can you comment on some moves in the state of Nevada, specifically with the governor, Brian Sandoval, signing a uh, law that is now the... Uh, really the most strict requirement for uh, the revelation of, of, of drug prices, which we strangely don't have.
5: Yeah. Well, it's great to be with you, Tim. Um, I think that the legislation really shows the frustration and the desperation people feel. Um, we've seen this public outcry about uh, drug prices and, and you know, some recent examples really focused on insulin. Um, I think it just demonstrates the pain people feel um, financially. I think that it, it's uh, something that's a threat to you know just common health health uh, healthcare for those those diabetics and it's it's a it's a really important topic i think that the legislation um, you know is a is a great Uh, First step. I think that there's there's much more, and it's a much more complex issue that needs to be dealt with.
2: Well, let's just talk. uh, But certainly, let's let's clarify what this legislation actually says. The law required drug makers to annually disclose the list prices they set, profits they make, and adjustments uh, to uh, any kind of uh, pricing due to inflation or, or otherwise. So basically, giving more transparency to how they set prices. Correct.
5: Yeah, that's right. And I think from a macro approach, it makes sense. But, you know, what the patient um, pays at the counter coupled with what their other therapeutic options are is what's going to be most impactful. Basically, what I'm saying is the data, you know, at year's end is really going to have a little impact on what uh, a consumer experiences when they go to try to buy their insulin.
2: Is this law constitutional?
5: Uh, say again, I'm sorry.
2: Is this law constitutional? Because I, I, I can imagine and, and uh, just reading up on it, it seems like some pharmaceutical companies are saying, you know, this might actually uh, raise some some legal issues about whether uh, whether the state can basically foist this kind of requirement upon them.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, you know, it's kind of like bringing one sandbag to a flood. Um, there's you know, it's going to have a limited effect um, because of the complexity of the system, you know, we're not just talking about manufacturers, but we're talking about an entire supply chain that's disrupted or, um, you know, may adjust other parameters. Um, and, and I think that even if you look at the, the fines, the $5,000 a day, uh, that adds up to $2 million. Um, that's really not, not that much money in the grand scheme of things, even if they decided not to disclose to the state.
1: But other states have also uh, taken this up, correct? Uh, Vermont, for example, uh, asking drug makers to justify certain price increases of 15% or more. Uh, is there any reason to doubt that other states will look at this and say, gee, we want the same benefits for our uh, uh, citizens?
5: Yeah, I think, um, I think that's certainly possible. And, and again, kind of back to the original point of, this is on one drug or one set of drugs. Um, it's certainly important and impactful, um, but there's a much bigger system here. And, you know, even if, uh, even if every state requires them to disclose the pricing, again, it's after the fact. Um, and, and what is it going to mean ultimately to the, con- the individual consumer at the pharmacy counter? There's, there's a lack of information both from a therapy standpoint and a price standpoint. That's the ultimate problem that needs to be solved. Um, so that the market forces can take over.
2: Michael, you started out by saying that this move on the part of Nevada legislators shows this desperation of people to get uh, pharmaceutical costs under control and how desperate people uh, feel throughout the country. How much is this an effort to put pressure on Washington to uh, perhaps inject a little bit more of a a collective bargaining power uh, when deciding or negotiating with pharmaceutical companies from Medicare and Medicaid?
5: Well, I think I think that there certainly is uh, that that's part of it. You know, everyone agrees that drug prices need to go down. Everyone agrees that you know people should have the right to to and, and access to this type of care. Uh, the question is, what are the dollars and cents, and who does it affect, and, and how? Um, and and it, again, it's very complex. You've got a supply chain that includes not just pharma, uh, but wholesalers, PBMs, pharmacies themselves, um, and so you you got to look at the entire system. Um, but I, I do think that there's, you know, it's a, it's a move to put further pressure on whether it's legal. I know was one question, um, that I've heard cited. It's, you know, is this type of, is this a precedent that can even be brought? Um, so I'm, I'm not sure to le- legally, um, how that would play out, but I'm, I'm sure there will be challenges to this.
1: M- Michael, uh, just quickly, um, also as part of this, uh, move in Nevada, uh, nonprofit organizations that are working on behalf of either patients or funding medical research, they're going to have to reveal and disclose the donations that they receive from pharmaceutical companies as well as insurance providers and benefit uh, pharmacy benefit companies. Why isn't that something that already happens?
5: Uh, that's a great question. Uh, again, back to the complexity. It's a, it's a very uh, very deep web of, of how money changes hands and, and who it's changing hands from. You know that's not a piece that I cited, but that's a fantastic example um, of of some of the you know economic mechanics. Um, and you know if you're going to have transparency, you can't have transparency just in one part. You need to have it everywhere.
2: Thank you so much for joining us, Michael Ray, founder and CEO of RX Savings Solutions, which is based in Overland Park, Kansas. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Recent data shows that the housing market recovery in the U.S. has been incredibly uneven. Big metropolitan areas like New York City, Miami, uh, San Francisco have gained disproportionately, uh, while other smaller municipalities have lagged behind. So what does a real estate investor do with this information? Terrell Gates joins us now. He's chief executive officer and founder of Virtus uh, Real Estate Capital, which uh, oversees about $3 billion in real estate assets from Austin. In Texas. Uh, Terrell, I'd love to get your take on this. When you see this bifurcated market that appears to be slowing down right now, do you avoid those municipalities that have gained the most, like the New Yorks of the world and the San Francisco's? Or do you think that those are the areas that are most resilient if there is another downturn in the near future?
6: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly entrance pricing or cost to buy today is a major factor in where you're going to invest and where you're not going to invest. But you also have to think about sustainability of that income stream, and you have to think about the growth potential. And so one of the things that's been occurring over the last 20 to 30 years is this great urbanization movement of people coming back into the cities, looking for more infill locations. And that's driving up those valuations that you're talking about.
1: Let's talk, if we can, about some of the areas in which you have expertise. I want to start with student housing, and I'm wondering if you could maybe use an example. I know there's one at Rutgers University, Rockoff Hall, Uh, maybe you could use that as an example. How would you find that property, and what attracts you to the student housing market? What makes it attractive?
6: Well, our overall thesis here at Virtus is we don't invest in traditional commercial real estate. We invest in property types that we believe are recession resilient. In other words, property types that can continue to perform even when there is an economic cycle downturn or a capital market cycle um, retreat. And we think student housing is one good example of that because when we go into a recessionary period, university enrollments actually increase. Not surprising, right? Because what that typically means is unemployment goes up, more people go back to school, and there's a greater need for housing. So the Rutgers University example, that's a property that's walking distance to the main campus of Rutgers University, which is one of the largest universities in the country. There's about 65,000 enrollment at all of its campuses. And for that particular property, we did buy that one off-market. It is the only private built, purpose-built student housing property in that particular market. And so we found it compelling because we felt like we could – increase the performance of that particular property, driving uh, revenue from that property, and ultimately driving income and valuation.
2: Terrell, if you're going to get into student housing, though, don't you have to consider a little bit more the whole backdrop of student debt and the fact that there is this growing concern that uh, all of these students who are borrowing all this money aren't going to be able to pay it back? Does it matter to the real estate investors?
6: It absolutely does, and you're hitting on a very important point there because there is a very different experience in investing at different types of universities. So this backdrop of the student housing bubble as well as online technology driving more lower-cost education is very much a factor. But what you will see is that the major tier one public flagship universities like Rutgers or here in Texas, where I'm from, it's University of Texas at Austin and Texas A&M University. Enrollment and demand for that quality education continue to increase. And so there just isn't enough housing. And what's happened really over the last 20 years, and, and I would say over the last 10 years at an even greater clip, is many of these universities have said, number one, we don't have the capital because we have less state support today than we did in the past to build the housing that we need to meet meet the demand from our kids and number 2 we're not good at it that's not what our job is our core competency as a university is education and research it's not real estate services so they've been outsourcing that need at a much greater clip to the private sector to groups like ours
1: Speak, if you can, about senior living uh, properties. I know you've got uh, some Detroit, uh, Orlando, as well as Burlington, Vermont. And then maybe just quickly on your medical office and self-storage, because each of those sort of tackles, uh, uses the same strategy, but tackles a different market.
6: That's exactly right. So senior living, same thing. Everybody knows about the graying of of America. Um, We haven't even gotten even close to the peak of what we're gonna see from the boomer generation, which that actually doesn't peak until about 2033. But what we've seen is, is um, for particularly needs-based senior living. In other words, when you gotta go, you gotta go. It's not really a question uh, because the level of care required means somebody can't be living completely independently. So for us, we think senior living is extraordinarily compelling because we think it is a very sustainable income stream because the reality is is even if you lose your job or you have to take a lower-cost job, probably the last thing you're going to do is take your 86-year-old mom out of a senior living community that's providing a high level of care that she really needs and provides her a better quality of life than she could get at home. So for us, uh, we think the space is uh, – compelling from a n- number of different perspectives, not only the sustainability of that income stream, but also the ability to grow it, providing higher quality operations and hospitality. You know,
2: Terrell, I have to think with all the money that's been going into real estate assets and the amount of uh, cash looking for some kind of bond substitute with higher uh, yields, I have to wonder, have you seen competition to your strategy just balloon and have valuations Absolutely. gone up dramatically? <laughs>
6: Yeah. So, you know, this is an interesting point, right? And, and a lot of our investors ask the same question, right? They're saying, well, wait a minute, all these people are getting into your property types because everybody looks over and they say, these property types, these quote-unquote alternative property types, many of which are becoming more mainstream, they have higher yields, higher total returns historically, they're recession resilient, I want to get in too. But what they don't quite understand about these property types is they're also more operationally intensive. And so what that means is there's more idiosyncratic risk. In other words, running a student housing property or running a senior living property is not like running a multifamily property. Similarly, running a medical office building is not like running an office building. So you have to have a lot of the main expertise in these particular categories. So what's happened is, is a lot of these new investors, whether it's big institutions like Starwood Capital or Carlisle or Blackstone or the sovereign wealth funds like GIC or the large pension funds, as they've come into this space, they're typically buying large portfolios, and, and usually there are premiums being paid for those large portfolios because they're making a macro bet on the space that it's going to continue to perform well. We, on the other hand, we generally buy one-off properties where valuations are usually a little more compelling that also have upside potential by improving the quality of the real estate or improving the quality of the operations. And then we ultimately end up selling to a lot of these big financial groups or the REITs and larger portfolios and hopefully garnering a premium.
1: Thanks very much for sharing all this information with us. Uh, Terrell Gates, chief executive officer, founder of Virtus, real estate capital based in Austin, Texas.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg p podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like